Hello, greetings and salutations. Uh, this is Paige, letting you in on my musings and meandering through the Gospel of John. Let me know you're here in the comments. And let's see, let me get this set up over here. Do, 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 there we are. There we are. Um. I'm armed with my coffee, my Bible, and me. Join me as you listen to me think with my mouth open. Today is a really sensitive subject for me. Not the direct subject of the material here, but we'll get into that here in a minute. Um, I'm really enjoying this approach to the Gospel of John because as I've mentioned before, uh, Taking a devotional approach has never, uh, well, I generally don't do it. And the reason is, oh, hi, Brandy. Good to see you. Uh, I hope your new job is working out well for you. Um, I, ha I'm, I'm an, I was an engineer in my career in the past and so I always have a mind that's looking for that looks to drill down drill down drill down drill down takes a really I, I like to take a an academic viewpoint and that that's not bad that's wonderful because you learn so much I mean there's so much to be learned from the original language from the original culture and I get all that but to me the discipline in this approach has been to read it and prayerfully consider it and see what God is talking to me about in the midst of this. Many times that means that what he's telling me is something that's inspired by what I'm read that doesn't directly attach itself to what uh, I've read. And that's kind of what today is. I don't mean to undermine the importance of this event, but it really, God really put his finger on something for me that I hope I can get across to you today. Let's, let's read the passage here. This is John chapter 8, 1 through 11. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? Now they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, 
until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. All right, let's get this cultural thing, framework set up here. He's teaching on the courts. It's during the Feast of the Tabernacles. Um, he's, he's teaching in the courts. Crowds are coming around him. Um, and now the teachers and the Pharisees, the, the, if you'll allow me to use the phrase, the legal wizards of the Jewish um, scriptural world, the ones that were pretty much unassailable in their knowledge, they're trying to trap him. And they bring a woman caught in adultery and throw it down at his throw her down at his feet. And they're trying to get him. They want him to say, stone her. And this was Jesus' response. He stoops and writes on the ground. Now, nobody knows what he wrote. I don't know. You don't know. Nobody knows. I don't even know if what he wrote on the ground had anything to, that it was any more powerful than the silence to their argument. But then when he stands up and says, hey, let any one of you without sin be the first to throw a stone. And of course they end up leaving. What does the law say about adultery? Well, let's go take a peek, shall we? Let's see here. All right. Oh, that's not the one I'm looking for. I'm looking for this one. Here we are. That's not the one I'm looking for. What? Oh, here we are. I'm over here. Sorry. <laughs> Deuteronomy 22 says, If a man happens to meet in town a virgin pledged to be married, and he sleeps with her, you shall take both of them to the gate of that town and stone them to death. The young woman, because she was in a town and didn't scream for help, and the man, because he violated another man's wife. You must purge the evil from among you. Hi, Jill. Sherman, Texas. Really? You're up early. God's blessings to you. And then Leviticus 20. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. So the obvious question is, if the Pharisees, if the Pharisees and uh, the the teachers of the law and the Pharisees were so interested in upholding the law, my que the original question has to be, well, where's the man? It says she was caught in the act of adultery. That means she was caught with the man. Where's the man? Why isn't he being brought forward? Hmm. So I'm, that's the first thing that comes to mind. They're being disin disingenuous here. They're, they, they're, what they should have done is brought the man and the woman in front. We're going to get to why that probably happened here in a minute. Uh, so that's the first thing. So the culture says, all right, if you're, if you're obeying the law, you need to bring both of them. So that's a big deal. But let's back up from this a second and understand something that I have been studying for several years. And I honestly, I still haven't wrapped myself all the way around it yet. But I understand the concept. And here's the concept. If you'll allow me to say, in the beginning was the law. 
we have the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou sh- and then uh, then you know Moses expanded on the on the law in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Uh, but then you have this law. It's this core set of principles that are supposed to guide and guard our lives. Very learned men would read and study the law and then they would apply it to real life situations that presented themselves. And so you ended up with the law and then you ended up with what ended up being something like case studies, examples and situations where people broke an aspect of the law and what was decided to do with them. So you have the law, you have these case studies. And then you have wise men who take a look at the case studies and the law and they start expounding on them. There becomes a very rich oral tradition of how the law should be expressed in our real life. And this goes on for centuries. By the time Jesus comes along, there are all sorts of things. There's uh, in addition to the Torah, you have what's called the Talmud, and then you have the Mishnah, and there's there's other things that I can't pronounce the names. Please forgive me. But you end up with compendiums of writings of very wise and learned men who made their life study the law and writing out what it means, what it should look like when it's walked out, all this kind of stuff. So what you end up with is the law and then all these other things surrounding it, trying to explain it, to expound upon it, and to apply it. It might be, by the time of Jesus, much of this had been gotten to the point where um, as much import was placed on these wise men's writings as were on Moses' writings or at least nearly as much importance. Frank, let's just, I'm going to give a very broad brush example of something. Um, Let's say, for instance, the law said, thou shalt not allow your child to touch the stove lest they be burned. Let's say that was the law. Pretty straightforward. But then someone says, They're looking at it and they say, you know, we need to identify how old the child is. Let's say 12 years old. All right. So then they said, what this law really means is if you're 12 years old and younger, don't touch a stove lest you're going to be burned. Okay. Then someone is looking it over and says, you know, we could keep that child from touching the stove if we we just added this little addendum on say, you know, if your child, 12 years old and younger, you must stay six feet away from the stove, lest you touch it, lest you be burned. Then someone else comes along and says, you know, what if the child falls forward from six feet away and reaches out his hand and touches the stove and he gets burned? Let's just say any child who's 12 years old should just stay out of the kitchen. And after several generations, all people remember is stay out of the kitchen if you're under 12. Now, the purpose of these 
add-ons, if you will, were well-intentioned. They don't want a child to burn their hands on the stove. But at the end of the day, what was written and what people quote and what people obey is not what the original law said or intended. The original law says, children, don't touch the stove. And the rest of the stuff is moving the people away from the original intent of that original law. So what today people might say, you know, if you're 12 years old, stay out of the kitchen. It's the law. No, it's not the law. The law was don't touch the stove. Now you're saying stay out of the kitchen. So in in a certain aspect, as people, as, as Israel went through their Babylonian dispersion, the Babylonian captivity, and the rabbinic tradition started to rise up. It was their job to preserve the law, the teaching of the law, and the interpretation of the law. Groups of writings and oral traditions and sayings started growing up to the point where by the time of Jesus, people were more interested in quoting certain rabbis than they were in quoting the original scripture in many instances. If you were an influential rabbi like Hillel, what you said about the scripture carried great weight. Now, before we go off in this highfalutin sense that, yeah, I'm sure, wow, that's, yeah, that's the Jewish tradition. We don't do it in America. Oh, we so do it in Christianity. We so do it in Christianity. Trust me in that. It's easy to fall into the trap of saying, well, he or she is much smarter than I am. And then you read what they say about a scripture and you take that as what the scripture says. I'm not saying they're wrong. But these people that have written all these incredible commentaries and these credible uh, works of literature that help support the meaning of the scripture... They're doing, they did what we should be doing. They looked deeply into the scripture and they pulled meaning out of it and they applied it. But it gets to the point where we might say, Matthew Henry says this about this passage. And my pastor says this about Matthew Henry's words on that passage of scripture. What am I holding in my hands here? Matthew Henry's commentary and my pastor's commentary. Where's the actual word? Where's the actual Bible? It's like the pastor is commenting, and I'm not saying this happens all the time, but I'm saying there's a danger where one person will comment on what another person says rather than going right to the scripture and seeing what it says. Um, A great example of this uh, might be where someone stands up and in the name of the Lord prophesies about a passage of scripture. There's many uh, disciplines within the Christian faith the Pentecostal charismatic side of the house where a great deal of emphasis is placed on prophecy. 
Okay, I have no problem with prophecy. Prophecy is biblical. They have prophesied from the beginning of time. That's okay with that. But when some, when a group of people, and I'm not pointing fingers here, I'm just saying this is our natural tendency, especially here in America. I, I can't speak outside of America, but from what I've experienced here in America is when someone we love prophesies or says something profound, it takes on the importance of scripture in some people's minds. It gets to the point where, where every one of us has our champion of the scripture. And we say, this person says this about that. This person says this about that. My question is, what, what does that say? This person's talking about the scripture. This person's talking about scripture. What does that scripture say? And that's kind of what's happening here in this situation with the woman caught in adultery. I don't know if they were deliberately disobeying what the word said. I kind of doubt it. I just think it seems to me like the law had morphed to a place where only the woman was going to be held accountable for adultery. And not the man. Which was not what the law originally said. Children, don't touch the stove lest you be burned. Ended up becoming, children, stay out of the kitchen. If a man and a woman commit adultery, both the man and the woman should be stoned. But by the time of Jesus, it's like the, only the woman was held accountable to be stoned. That wasn't what the law said. And you would think that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees would know that. Now, if they knew that, then this was an incredibly evil act. Because they were breaking the law knowingly. But it's quite possible that in the centuries since the law was written, that certain commentaries might have led them to this conclusion. And if that's the case, their, their sin is in not paying attention to the original law itself but paying more attention to all the things written about the law. Does that make sense? So what I get from this passage of scripture is first of all, the proper handling of the word of God. We're called to study to show ourselves approved. That's what Paul says. I believe in uh, one of his epistles to Timothy. Study to show yourselves approved. We are responsible for knowing what the scripture says. I'm not saying don't read commentaries. Don't see what Max Lucado, one of my favorites, has to say about something. But Max Lucado would tell you what I'm going to tell you. And what God tells you. Study to show yourselves approved. Study the scriptures. You got a brain? Read the Bible. Get God's word into you. What generally happens in my observation, what generally happens when people start paying incredible attention, amounts of attention to commentaries and what other people said about what other people said about the scripture, it's we tend to develop a very legalistic, closed view of things. Much like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were like in Jesus' time. 
they had a very big sense of moral superiority. They not only had the law and the prophets, they had Hillel. They had all these influential rabbis and all the things they said. And they would throw their names around like to give themselves importance. I follow this school of thought. I follow this school of thought. Much the same way today as some Christians will say, oh, I'm so definitely Calvinistic. I'm so definitely Armenian. Uh, there are some people who can quote you end on end on end what John Calvin had to say in his institutes. There are people who can quote end on end on end what great Armenian preachers have said. And the result is a legalistic, non-compassionate view of the world around you. To, in my, that's just my observation. Personally, I tend to lean more towards the Calvinistic side of the house. But I've learned in my 65 years of life that there's 8 million things I don't know. I've learned that my job as a believer in this world is to emulate Jesus in his compassion and in his approach to dealing with people who are sinners. And there was a time in my life when I probably would have leaned more towards the Pharisees and the teachers of the law method of dealing with things. It's cut and dry. It's black and white. Do this, you should die. I, I never said it like that, but I was very judgmental. And I've come to learn that I just don't know enough to be able to judge that completely. And so I'm trying very, very hard to not be that kind of a judgmental person. Jesus never, uh, he didn't defend her in the sense, trying to convince them in a court of law that she hadn't been committed adultery, that she wasn't a sinner. He just looked at them and said, all right, which, which of you is without sin? You get to cast the first stone. And nobody was without sin. And they left. I kind of think, this is the page's cinematic mind going, I kind of think that perhaps he sat and wrote the law, the original law, in this dirt in front of them. And they saw that there was no man there. They should have brought the woman and the man. So they were guilty. They were guilty of, of interfering with the law of God. Because they didn't obey. They weren't obeying the law of God. They were obeying their nature. They were obeying their sin nature rather than the nature of God. And so when he says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And they were gone. No one, sir. Then I don't condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. He didn't tell her that she was okay. He said, leave your life of sin. Stop committing adultery. Now, we don't know what happened to her. This is the last we hear of her. But again, this is a perfect example 
of what I'm getting out of the Gospel of John. How Jesus handles the religious moral superiority and how he handles the one that the, the religious community is kicking to the curb. Now, I'm going to say this and then I'm out. And then I'm gone. I have friends in the Native American activist community. I have friends of mine who are in the uh, uh, African American community. The Native American community has justified anger towards the white community. From the time that the white Europeans settled on the east coast of the United States to now, there have been there has been atrocity after atrocity after atrocity committed within the and upon the Native American population. They have a general distrust, if not outright anger, at the white community. I understand it. It's well deserved. But part of their specific anger has been against the white Christian community. And I get that too. Because when they first came to America, white Christianity designated Native Americans and African Americans as less than human, bearing the mark of Cain. Therefore, they should be shamed. Therefore, they should be uh, wiped out. Therefore, they should be looked down upon as less than. For centuries, that's been the case. And I understand it, and I bow my head in shame at what has been done in the name of Christianity. But that's not the Christianity that Jesus taught. That's not the Christianity contained in the pages of our Bible. What it is, is a result of men placing more emphasis on other men's interpretation of things to the point where they can quote other commentaries more than they can quote the scriptures themselves. So we need to be very, very circumspect in how we view the world around us. We need to view it through the lens of the scriptures. You're not dumb. Read the Bible. Yeah, go to the commentaries because there's some cool stuff there. There is cool stuff there. I mean, I, I read commentaries all the time. But I don't accept it as pure gospel. And I'm not afraid to disagree with it if it appears to contradict what the Bible says. It's just men who wrote that. Fallible men. We're not dumb. We can read the Bible for ourselves. I can read this. And without any commentary, I could have found the law that applies to adultery, and I did. And I could see right away what the problem is here. That's not... We can do that. What God is reminding me of here is that I need to be true to the Word. The Word has to be my primary source for my devotions, my primary source to get a picture of what Jesus was really like, because that's the Gospel of John. What was Jesus like? Who was he? 
I need to have, the Bible needs to be my primary source, not the commentaries. I, God, please keep me from becoming a person that looks upon what this person says about what this person said and that there's no Bible here anymore. I'm relying on commentary of commentaries. All right. Well, that's all I got for this. We will move on tomorrow. Jesus is beginning to put it, dig his feet into the sand and take a stand against its religious community. And they're not going to like him. Well, they already don't like him. This is Mr. G. And I am out of here.